Hello, and welcome to the Hague Courts Dialogue Series podcast, where recent decisions of courts and tribunals in The Hague, as well as contemporary developments concerning them, are discussed in detail. My name is Carl Lewis, and I will be your host. In this episode, we will be taking a closer look at the case pending between Ukraine and the Russian Federation at the International Court of Justice, the allegations of genocide under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide case. We will be paying particular focus to the court's recent order of provisional measures on the 16th of March 2022, and what questions this order raises in respect to our understanding of the role of the International Court of Justice in the international legal order. But before we begin, it is useful to recall the background to this case. Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February 2022, after President Vladimir Putin decided to carry out what he termed a special military operation to protect peoples in the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts of Ukraine, regions which Putin stated for eight years now have been facing humiliation and genocide perpetrated by the Kiev regime. However, Ukraine submitted an application instituting proceedings at the ICJ in this case only two days after the invasion, concerning a dispute relating to the interpretation, application and fulfilment of the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, asking the court to, amongst other things, adjudge and declare that contrary to what the Russian Federation claims, no acts of genocide have been committed by the Ukraine, and that the special military operation declared and carried out by the Russian Federation on and after the 24th of February 2022 is based on a false claim of genocide and therefore has no basis in the Genocide Convention. Along with this, Ukraine submitted a request for the indication of provisional measures, asking the court to, amongst other things, order the Russian Federation to immediately suspend the military operations commenced on the 24th of February. These were asked in order to prevent irreparable prejudice to the rights of Ukraine and its people, and to avoid aggravating or extending the dispute between the parties under the Genocide Convention. The court ordered provisional measures on the 16th of March 2022, which whilst not identical to those requested, did include an order for Russia to cease its special military operations pending a final decision by the court. On the same day, in a speech to the US Congress, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky stated that the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, but we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. On the day of recording, the Ukraine is still under attack, still fighting, with millions of people affected by the conflict and civilian casualties numbering in the thousands. This ongoing conflict no doubt concerns what some would consider core values of the international community. And so in this episode, we take the opportunity to look back at the court's order and its role in the developments of this ongoing crisis and consider how this case speaks to the relationship between international dispute settlement and what may be considered the values of the international community. To do so, it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Ingo Venska, Professor of International Law and Social Justice at the Department of International and European Law at the University of Amsterdam and Director of the Amsterdam Centre for International Law. Professor Venska is currently undertaking a fellowship at the New Institute in Hamburg, where he is contributing to both the programs of the Foundations of Value and Values and the Future of a Democracy. His research focuses on both the theory and practice of international law, its interpretation, and the functions that international courts play in global governance. Currently, Professor Venska is specifically focusing on the contingency of law and its role when concerned with global justice, or indeed injustices, 
offering us an expert perspective on several key issues raised by this case for international law in general, and an invaluable opportunity to consider this recent and ongoing case, whilst not letting go of Zelensky's challenge for us to not forget global values. Professor Venska, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Carl. If you could please start us off by explaining what it is that you research, in particular at the moment, and how it speaks to this topic. Yeah, certainly. So thanks again for having me. There are three components to my research that I want to highlight um, for today. One is a continuous interest in the practice of interpretation that follows from my PhD, where I've tried to develop an understanding of interpretation as a practice that is both creative and constrained. And I've continued to pursue that interest to zoom in more on how you can critique, what are standards of critique for an interpretation when the law, so to say, doesn't give away the answer and the law is better understood, as I would suggest, as the battleground on which different interpretations compete for objectivity. So that's one thing to which we probably come back um, later on. A second component is um, the work on the public authority of international courts and tribunals, their understanding in a multi multifunctional perspective beyond the settlement of disputes, also in their functions of lawmakers and actors in global governance. And the third component is a set of historical work dipping into some of the debates about international legal historical methodology, where I've thought about the possibilities, as you mentioned, Carl, of, past, um, of the past and uh, the contingency of international law, how international law could have been otherwise. And more concretely, I have done that in the field of international economic law, spurred by my concern about how that body of law has been complicit and contributed to staggering levels of inequality. But it's also been an interest, um, more concretely and closer to our topic today, with regard to the practice and the development um, at the International Court of Justice, where I looked at the history of that institution, of that court, um, through different frames of struggle and rivalry between North-South, and especially during the Cold War between East and West. I'm naturally interested in this idea of the legal courtroom as a battleground, right? I mean, quite strong words in general. Let us begin now with maybe, let's say, the title of one of the departments you're working with in your current fellowship, and this issue of values. I want to recall this phrasing by uh, President Zelensky and his statement that the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, but are fighting for the values of Europe and the world. Throughout that same speech, we can see reference and allusion to peace and justice as such values. Now, bearing this in mind, what sense, especially coming from your research and what you understand as you know, within the battleground of legal argumentation, does it make to speak of values of the world, especially when talking about the legal disputes such as this? And how are we to understand this relationship between the evocation of such values and the practice of international law in general? Yeah, so these are wonderful, broad, but also specific and, and topical questions. So I, first off, I think it certainly does make sense to speak of, of values of the world, of universal values. So there's a venerable position, certainly, to say that there are universal values. Philosophically, that is a strong argument, not without equally strong, or not equally perhaps, but strong criticism, as you know, that uh, values can be to the topic of objective debate, that they're not only subjective in the eye of the beholder. So in international law, that view has um, large and wide support of proponents who either base international law 
in considerations of uh, justice, or at least see that law as a tool to pursue justice. And Herschel Atterpach will be one of the stellar figures in this tradition. But I like how you link that question about values to their evocation, how they are used in international legal discourse. And you also know the bon mot uh, popularized by Carl Schmidt, according to which whoever says humanity wants to cheat. And it's clear that greatest crimes have been committed and are being committed now in the name of humanity, especially through racialized colonialism, particular values, European values perhaps, have been imposed on large parts of the world at great human cost. And so that makes one perhaps wonder whether then all evocations of values are inherently suspect. I don't think so. And I think it matters who speaks when, where, and which claims they are actually making. And I do think that President Zelensky is quite right when he says that Ukraine defends universal values, which I would take to mean um, to be values of non-domination in this particular case. At the same time, the court itself, the International Court of Justice, doesn't actually use this word, if I'm not mistaken, so far in this case. Um, I'm sure perhaps values has turned up in its uh, previous jurisprudence. So what would you consider then to be this relationship between international dispute settlement, especially here at the ICJ, and this general idea of values, right? Because it seems strange, surely this is a court of law. Right. Now, I haven't seen the, the concept of value as such um, pop up in uh, this particular order or yeah, would have to research more into the previous practices, but it does prompt that question exactly. So in my work, I've tried to distinguish four different understandings of international courts and tribunals and trace such understandings in decades of scholarship and also practice. And I should say that a lot of this work has been uh, conducted together with uh, Armin von Bogdani. So it's a, joint, it's a joint project. It's been a joint project. And in the first understanding of international courts and tribunals, they appear as instruments in the hands of the parties. They would only have one function, the settlement of the concrete case, monofunctional. That's how you also encounter most courts and the practice of dispute settlement in textbooks. And it's at the end, there's the means of dispute settlement, and that's where courts pop up. But that's not the only, and in many cases, not the most compelling understanding. And this is where then also values and other functions come in. In the second understanding, international courts can have been in scholarship and practice understood as organs of the international community. And with such an understanding, functions come into view beyond the settling of disputes, such as upholding and developing the law or of lawmaking. In broader theory, that function of, um, of courts is well described, I think, as the stabilization and development of normative expectations. And there we get closer to values. A third understanding, just briefly, but less relevant here, um, is of international courts and tribunals as institutions of particular legal regimes. So investment law tribunals fit that image very well. They tend to act in line with the functional rationality of their particular regime, such as protecting the um, positions of foreign direct investors. And a fourth understanding would be of courts, tribunals as actors who exercise public authority. And all these understandings of these courts and tribunals as instruments, as organs, as institutions, and as actors also comes with a view on their sources of legitimacy and authority. 
Now, the link with values, as I said, is strongest in the second understanding of courts as organs of the international community. So that's also how the UN Charter describes the International Court of Justice as the principal organ. It is an organ of the UN and of the community, and as such, it is linked to values of the larger whole. At the same time, the ICJ is a fairly weak institution that relies on the consent of state parties. And a lot of its practice, I would suggest, can actually be well understood as a wavering between values of the community and interests of the parties. And that's something that we can also see in this particular case um, that Ukraine brought against Russia or that Georgia brought against Russia before it. So international dispute settlement bodies in your mind have various roles, right? Yeah. They act as organs of communities. And of course, the International Court of Justice we see is perhaps one of, the, one of the principal organs of the international community, um, under the UN uh, institution. What role do you think the Ukrainian um, representatives were seeking from the court in this instance, right? So they brought forward uh, a request for indication of provisional measures. And there was this phrasing um, which I saw from the agent of Ukraine, which said the following, and I quote, if Russia will not return to international law on its own, the court has the power to act. And then interestingly, said, with respect, the court has the responsibility to act. Russia must be stopped and the court has to, a role to play in stopping it. But this doesn't seem to be a classic role we expect of a dispute settlement body, right? The idea of having to stop an actor. No, I think that's definitely the case where, so you see a lot in the practice of the court and in this uh, particular case that indeed goes beyond that primary role or function of settling, settling disputes. And um, you can see here the traces of that understanding of the court as an organ of the international community through the operative decision, but also in a lot of what the court in a way does on the side. Um, so one of the things that he, the, the majority, the court says on the side, which is not necessarily, you know, um, it's not necessary for deciding the case, would be, for instance, um, in paragraph 18, the court says, quote, it is profoundly concerned about the use of force by the Russian Federation in Ukraine, which raises, which raises very serious issues of international law. And I continue to quote him. The court is mindful of the purposes and principles of the United Nations Charter and its own responsibilities in maintenance of international mm -hmm. peace and security and so on, end of quote. So it also sees that responsibility for, for itself and expresses that concern in a way that you know, is, is clearly geared towards a wider audience and reflects a wider function than the settlement of disputes. Um, in paragraph 75, there's a similar... Uh, instance of that posture where the court considers, quote, that the civilian population affected by the present conflict is extremely vulnerable, end of quote. Mm -hmm. So it positions itself as an organ of the international community concerned not only with the settlement of the disputes um, or the interests of the parties. What concerns the actual operative decision beyond these things on the side, so to speak, not to make them less relevant, but you know, it's not the necessary for the decision so much, so you will recall that the decision had a large majority, uh, 13 votes to two. So it affirmed its jurisdiction 
prima facie as it must do to order provisional measures. And there are two things that I find remarkable then in that operative or in the it's operative is not the right word in the in the in the legal reasoning. So one point that is remarkable is the right that the court that the court finds is actually at issue here. Uh, and the second one is the measures that the court is then prescribing. So what concerns the right, as you said, the claim that Ukraine brought before the court is to say that Russia is wrongfully accusing it of committing genocide and that Russia uh, cannot in any event, whether or not, you know, whatever the allegations um, itself use, resort to the use of force, engage in military operation to um, punish and prevent genocide being committed. Now, the right that is being protected, however, and that allows the court actually to order, as you said, the um, order Russia to seize um, the military operation is defined differently. So you could imagine that it would be defined as a right not to be um, wrongly accused of genocide. So that's a possibility. And then the uh, measure would have been uh, Russia must stop to accuse um, Ukraine of uh, committing genocide. But that's, you know, would be um, not so not so powerful. And the court actually has a different take following the pleadings of, of Ukraine. In paragraph 60, um, it identifies that right um, that is being protected um, as, quote, Ukraine has the plausible right not to be subject to military operations by the Russian Federation for the purpose of preventing and punishing an alleged genocide in the territory of Ukraine. End of quote. So that's remarkable. It's plausible, but perhaps not the most obvious approach to establishing the court's jurisdiction on the basis of the Genocide Convention. Now, it gives a bitter, somewhat bitter aftertaste to the two dissenting votes that they were cast by the judges of Russian and Chinese nationality, but the arguments of those dissenting votes, I would say, are also rather plausible. I would say that in a narrow reading of the law, both conclusions of the majority and of the minority um, that wasn't joined, but in their dissent uh, somewhat similar, are plausible, perhaps even similarly correct. And then the question, of course, arises what to do. And I already want to note, foreshadowing perhaps a little bit, I imagine we might come back to that, the separate... Um, opinion by Judge Benuna, who said very candidly, perhaps, that, uh, quote, I voted in favor of the order because I felt compelled by this tragic situation, end of quote. And it shows in the opinion that, um, that he had strong doubts what was legally correct in the, in the, in the end of his opinion. He says that um, there's actually an artificial linking of... Um, a concern about the unlawful use of force to the genocide convention, something that even he's, he opines may end up weakening the instrument of the genocide convention. And the second point is the uh, measures themselves. As you say, it's not only as uh, Ukraine um, asked, in a way, the obligation to seize the military operation um, to the extent that their purpose is the um, their purpose and objective is the prevention and punishment of the claim of genocide, but it goes beyond that. It says um, the court says the Russian Federation shall immediately suspend the military operations 
that it commenced on for the second uh, uh, February 2022 in the territory of Ukraine. Period. Mm. Uh, so it's the obligation to immediately suspend. Period, and thereby the court rules out other possible justifications uh, too. You know, we we know that they are not so plausible. Yeah, so there is no good justification for the Russian aggression as against Ukraine. But you could say that that goes beyond the scope of the jurisdiction of the court in this in this particular case, or at least it's a tenuous link. Yeah, maybe not beyond, but it's a tenuous link, and I think that's what Judge Benuna also alludes to. Indeed, I think was that his first line, if I remember exactly. correctly, right? It's his very first line. Yeah. And um, actually, a question that comes up to my mind immediately is what your thoughts are on the silence of the other judges, right? Because there doesn't need to be necessarily a declaration, right? And there is an absence of other judges and their opinions on the matter. And we are left to wonder whether they had the same opinion as Judge Benuna. What can we make of the silence of the judges here on not explaining their decision, considering it... To some <laughs> separate opinions is quite controversial. Yes, so there are of course a few uh, apart from the dissent um, and Judge Benuna, and they are mostly concerned with the relation to uh, earlier decisions um, on on jurisdiction of the Genocide Convention, notably the legality, legality of the threat and use of uh, force cases. Of that, that uh, Yugoslavia brought um, in the 90s against several NATO countries. Um, so that's also interesting. Um, it's a different topic. Huh? The force of earlier decisions in a non-technical term, you could say precedence. So there's a strong um, uh, yeah, debate in those separate opinions about how to reconcile this with that earlier practice. And I think it works, uh, but it's, it's noticeable that that is a strong concern. Um, I think there's not more candor in that sense, uh, like the one of Benuna where he says, yeah, it's a bit legally tricky, but I really couldn't have done otherwise. I felt compelled by the tragic situation. Um, and I think one of the main reasons why we wouldn't see that more often is as a strong commitment of the, the judges to the court as an institution. And I think that an open articulation that the two, the law and considerations of justice, do not really align, um, and that you know it may insinuate that the the court really is doing something else here than the application of of, of the law as its mandate is supposed to be, and its task is supposed to be. Would um, recognizing that uh, would would eventually weaken the court as an institution, and um, and that is something that. It's not only in the interest, but also not in the in the convictions of of the of the majority and justice um, of of of, 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 of um, judges. Mm -hmm. So let's stay on this potential weakening of the legitimacy of the court, because I imagine from perhaps let's say a moral argument. Well, first of all, you mentioned in paragraph eighteen how the court expressed, let's say, in legal terms, is moral. Uh, uh, how do I put this? Uh, well, his moral position, right? So it mentioned its concern of the use of force, is trying to show the world that it is concerned about the situation, regardless of whatever the argument is about in this case. Um, I heard, in a, I believe in the Egil podcast, um, a, a sentence which struck me, especially related to your work, however. In terms of whether or not the court knew or understood that it had a certain requirement to indicate provisional measures 
regardless of what it may think the merits of the case could be, right? And I believe the sentence was something like, how could the court not indicate provisional measures in this case? But of course, your research asks us to move away from this idea, I believe, false necessity, right? And to think about the contingency of, well, our lives, development, history. Would you speak a little bit about, about this? Was there really a possibility for the International Court of Justice to do anything other than order uh, Russia to cease its special military operation? Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a great question. So with the work on contingency, on thinking through how international law could possibly have been otherwise, um, I've tried, one, well, one of the objectives has been to counter a certain hindsight bias, the bias that after something has happened, there's an exaggerated belief in that event's likelihood. Um, so here, again, you recall, there's this large majority of 13 votes in favor, only two against the um, two main operative uh, decisions, uh, one in unanimity, unanimity, which was less controversial, but obliging all uh, parties, both parties, not to contribute to a further aggravation of the dispute. Okay, so then the question arises, how could it have been otherwise? How could it not have been? Also in light of the fact that there was such a, a wide, uh, large majority. But I'm certain that before that, I don't know when you, when you heard that sentence, um, whether it was actually before or after the, the decision, whether it, uh, but I think before the decision, I myself and I think uh, among my, my colleagues, there was some uncertainty or wariness, at least, that the court might actually not uphold its jurisdiction, or if it did, which I think yeah, was um, a general feeling, then the order might be considerably more narrow than it actually turned out to be. Now, ex post, and with that comfortable majority, it seems like a rather unreasonable worry. And mm -hmm. the thinking through um, contingency as a counter-move towards, um, towards hindsight bias is to, to remember that, to, that worry. And as I said, the dissents are not at all implausible, and there was could have been also many more options in between. There were different legal choices for the court to make, and that is something that um, I'm after, or that is shown by thinking through what else was possible. But then the question persists, as as you also then insist, could it have? Yeah? So those choices were legally possible, but could they have been made? And there I'm reminded of a nice contribution by Michele Tedeschini in a book that I co-audited on the contingency in the course of international law. And in that uh, chapter, he takes a closer look at the Tadic decision of the International um, Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And his argument in a nutshell is that that Tadic decision, um, which was about, which ended before the appeals chamber and um, forced the appeals chamber basically to decide on the legality of its own existence, yeah, the legality of the Security Council resolutions that um, established the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And Tedeschini argues that that was an entirely open legal decision, perhaps even pointing more into the direction of finding illegality than legality. But at that moment of legal indeterminacy, a series of other structural considerations came in for each individual member 
and also for the institution as a whole. And Tedeschini argues that Tadic, while legally most open, was practically most closed. It could not have been otherwise. And I think that applies in this case too. I think legally there were several open decisions, but I think practically, mm. yeah, what would the outcry have been? Yeah. So what holds for Benuna, how could I have done something else? I felt compelled, and I think that uh, holds for others and maybe is for, for the institution as an actor as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll end on one final question um, regarding potential cynicism with the court. Right? So, okay, the court, let's say, couldn't practically have done otherwise. And uh, we're glad to see that there was indication of provisional measures. However, there would be those, and I've even heard students already uh, being concerned of the value here of these decisions if a state like Russia simply doesn't follow them. So how would you express, nevertheless, the importance of such decisions, the reason why we should pay attention to such decisions, and why it definitely does matter that Ukraine uh, made an application to the International Court of Justice? Yes, I think I think that's a legitimate uh, and real worry, uh, a worry that I share, and I think it's a, a cognitive expectation uh, in a way that is that is correct. So I um, was struck by a sentence that Yves Daudet, the judge ad hoc for Ukraine or nominated by Ukraine, um, um, so something that he said in his uh, opinion. He said that uh, also again alluding to the function of the court beyond the settlement of dispute that. Quote, public opinion was informed by the media of Ukraine's referral to the court um, and many people placed their hopes in the voice of international law that the world court would carry. I believe, today says, that this order will meet the legitimate expectations, end of quote. And I think that's, that's rather questionable, to be honest. Yeah? So I think there is a value to this, um, to this decision and I get to that. But... Um, yeah, but, but, but something like a blind faith in, in international law and the magic that it would work on the ground, I think, is, is mistaken. I think there's a lot of thinking uh, continues to, 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 to be present in international law of, of thinking of, that in, of the law as a, as a mission, right? And that, that, there's something good to that, but um, I think it, it shouldn't blind us to, um, to, likely, to likely consequences and unlikely consequences. So I think actually there's rather little that this decision will do with regard to Putin's choices on the ground. It has Putin and um, has so far ignored um, the decision and it will most likely to continue, continue to do so. Um, but it doesn't uh, exhaust the importance. Uh, so to get to that, and what I would tell, tell the students is that it does matter greatly, not even so much, yes, for public opinion perhaps, but for third countries um, like the Netherlands and notably China. So the courts add clarity to what was perhaps excessively clear already is that Russia is under an obligation to immediately seize and uh, its military operations, withdraw its forces. Any action of third parties that contravenes this obligation is itself a violation of international law. So the law and the decision are important in distinguishing the parties at war. And the obligations on third parties, the Netherlands, US, and other countries can support Ukraine through training, supply of weapons, for instance. Any country that would support Russia would do so in violation of international law. 
and would itself become internationally responsible. I think that's a very important contribution and the contribution that the court has, has made. And as I'm sure your work also supports, uh, the language of international law is certainly not irrelevant, especially since it's been advanced by both Ukraine and Russia. So the fact that the court has opened up as well as closed some doors to potential justifications by other states, as you rightly say, is naturally very important. Yes, I would, that, uh, I would add, however, that I think there's a um, worrisome qualitative shift. So I do think that uh, international law is that, that lang language for international relations and that it um, uh, serves as a um, means through which actors want to legitimize their their actions. Um, in the case of Russia, however, it seems that their posture seems to suggest that they, they really don't care, mm. right? So that's, it's not even about um, an instrumental use. I would say, well, I mean, the use of the law tends to be instrumental. Uh, so that's, that, that's, that's in, the, in the nature of things almost. But um, the use of Russia suggests much more a disdain, a showcasing of hypocrisy of saying, look, I mean, here I'm intervening in the name of preventing and punishing genocide. Uh, look at you. Uh, you have done something similar in Kosovo. Uh, you have done something similar in Libya and Syria and, um, and attacked uh, Iraq on the basis of a very rather far-fetched uh, legal accusation. So it's much more... Um, um, a showcasing of hypocrisy on the part of Russia than the suggestion that... Um, that, that uh, so what doesn't hold, I think, is that Russia here invokes the law in an attempt to justify its decision and to convince anyone. I think that's, mm. not, that's not its intention. Indeed, a much more literal battleground than mm. with what we started with. Professor Venska, thank you very much. Of thank course, you so much. Absolutely. We hope for a uh, peaceful end to this conflict as soon as possible. Well, certainly. And uh, yeah, looking forward to further conversations with you in the future. Me too. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs>